We'll turn with me this morning, your copy of God's Word, to Mark chapter 16. After many months studying the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the book of Mark, this account of the gospel that has been given to us, we now come to the end. And so we're going to bring it to a close this morning. And I have to confess to you that uh, this is not really the way that I, I would have chosen to end it, uh, not maybe my preference. Uh, we're going to have to talk a little bit about these verses and their very existence here in our, our, our Bibles before us this morning as we begin, before we can actually address the text and deal with what I believe God is trying to say to us through it. Um, but there is a lot of debate in Mark chapter 16, and we'll just, I'll give you this before we even read it. There's a lot of debate, and there has been for many, many, many years in church history, about whether or not verses 9 through 20, uh, the closing of the book of Mark, were originally a part of these scriptures. Whether or not Mark, in writing his gospel, actually penned these words that are found in verses 9 through 20. Now, if you have a King James Version, it's there uh, with no qualification. But if you have uh, it really any other, uh, any other translation of the Bible, some of them leave it out. Uh, and then some of them put it in, like the ESV that we have before us today and in your pew. They put it in, but they simply put a note, like a footnote, explaining what the difficulty is. <clears throat> and essentially, we have to understand that when we, when we have our Bibles, our English Bibles before us, uh, and, and, and even our Hebrew and Greek Bibles, like the ones that I have in my office to study from, we must understand that those Bibles are copies of copies, and in the case of our English translation, that they are translations into another language of copies of copies of God's Word. And the reason that is, because dating back to the apostles who authored the New Testament and the Old Testament scriptures, we do not have any of the original autographs. We don't have any of the original text. And when, when we consider verses 9 through 20, of Mark's gospel at the end of chapter 16, uh, it seems to become fairly clear that, that this was probably not part of the original text. I, I confess that to you this morning. The earliest manuscripts that we have, now now granted, don't, don't have too much concern just yet. While we don't have the original autograph, the scriptures that are before us are one of the most historically validated documents in all of the world. There has been more care taken to preserve them, and there has been more corroboration of the historical documents found about them than of any book or any document that's ever existed in all of the world. So I'm not telling you that to cause you to question your Bible in front of you, but I'm simply trying to lay out the reality of the scriptures. And if we go back to the earliest manuscripts that we have where men, in, where, where men copy down the Word of God all the way back to the second century, what we find is that the earliest of those manuscripts do not have verses 9 to 20. They're just absent. The Gospel of Mark ends with verse 8 of chapter 16. And it's odd. One of the reasons I think that this has been so debated is because as we saw last time, after the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Christ, if you go back to verse 8, it just says they went out and fled from the tomb, the women that were there to see him. 
for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I mean, really, after all we've studied, after all we've seen, and after all Christ has done for these people, that's the way Mark ends it. And so it's a very abrupt and puzzling ending to this gospel account, this beautiful accounting of the life and the testimony of the death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel of Jesus. This is a strange way to end it. And so uh, it, 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 it brings the question to mind, these verses that then follow, are they originally apart? And so uh, they're not in the earliest manuscripts, but then even dealing with the text itself, not so much in the English, though some of it, and I'll show you, but in the original language, in the Greek that's here, both the literature, the literary style, context, and grammar does not seem to point to Mark having written these words. The style that he uses in the last, in verses 9 to 20, the style of whoever wrote this is very, very different from all that's come before. The transition is extremely abrupt and does not seem to fit. I mean, take, for example, the whole accounting of the first eight verses of chapter 16 is about the women that go to the tomb. In fact, it ends abruptly with their being afraid and trembling with astonishment and leaving the tomb. And then in verse 9, look at what it says. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Well, I mean, it goes with no transition, no, no movement, literally speaking, from the women to then a verb, a masculine verb, that seems to be talking about a, a male subject. So there's no connection to all of the, the previous discussion that was just taking place. That's just one example. When you begin to really study the, the depth and the language and the grammar of the passage, it doesn't really seem to fit. It's not in the earliest manuscripts that we have. And so the reality is, I think the evidence seems to point to the fact that verses 9 through 20 were probably not a part of the text. Okay? There. I'm going to preach it. And I'm going to preach it to you as the Word of God. The question then is why? Many men, uh, some of the men that I have the greatest respect for in pastoral ministry, they, they, they do not, when they preach through the book of Mark, they, they stop at verse 8. Um, some of them, however, preach verses 9 through 20. I'm going to preach them this morning. The question is why. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you four reasons why, and then I'm going to give you three warnings just very quickly as to why we're going to study it, and then three warnings that we can take from this difficult struggle with the text about studying the Word of God in general before we get to the text. So, number one, why are we going to study it? Because in God's providence, it is here. Not to oversimplify the matter, but in God's sovereign providence over all of his creation and his preserving of his faithful word for his people, verses 9 through 20 are simply here. And they have been here for quite a long time because while many of the church fathers were not aware at all of this text and its existence. They seem to be totally, uh, they had no knowledge of it whatsoever. And in many of the manuscripts, it was absent. Not all of them was it absent from. So that some of the manuscripts did possess verses 9 through 20. And some of the church fathers going all the way back to the second century did have knowledge of this, we know from their writing. Irenaeus would be a good example. And it's even possible that, that the, the great and famous church, church father, Justin Martyr, would have known about these. So in God's providence, it's here, and we have to wrestle with that reality. And it's been here for quite a long time, at least, in its, uh, at least with Christians and God's people having knowledge of it. Secondly, we're going to study it because we could be wrong. I think, 
that the evidence seems to suggest that it was not originally part of the text. But I'm a dumb sinner. And so we could be wrong. We are prone to sin and we often do not get it. And because in God's providence it is here, I am not willing to risk the possibility that God has preserved it and put it here for us because it is part of his word. And I do not want to be found intentionally and willfully leaving out part of God's word that was given for our edification. So God put it, I mean, in God's providence, it's before us, and it's been there for some time, and I could be wrong about the evidence that seems to say that it's not a part of it. And although it does not seem to be part of the original autograph, or at least the evidence would seem to suggest it, it does not teach any truths that are not generally taught also in other parts of the Bible. In other words, by taking these, nine, these, these verses, 9 through 20, these 11 verses together, it doesn't contradict the other parts of Scripture in any way. It seems to teach general truths that are widely accepted and taught by other apostles and other authors of Scripture in other places in the Bible. And lastly, we're going to study it today, fourthly, because I don't want you to lose confidence in your Bible. I never want to do anything to cause you to question the authority and the inerrancy of the Bible, the English Bible that you have before you. Yes, it's true. We do not have the original autographs of the pages. Yes, it's true that we only have copies of copies. And then in our case, with our English Bibles, the translation into another language of those copies. But it is also true that God has been at work all through the history of the church to give us his word and to preserve it for his people, that we would be built up and edified by it. And so the, 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 the English Bible that you have before you, friends, it is a faithful testimony of the inerrant, infallible word of God that was given by the Holy Spirit through men. And I never want to cause you to lose confidence in that. So we're going to study these pages, these, these verses together. Now, let me give you, I mean, three, but really one major warning as we study God's word, just to help you as you move forward. Something you can learn from the difficulty about whether or not these verses were here is that we should never base any doctrinal truth off one single verse or passage or text. I, I got news for you. If you go down and you'll see at the end, where, where Christ promises that they will be able to do all sorts of things, miraculous things. One of them is that they will take up serpents and the serpents will not harm them. <laughs> and, and because of this one verse in this questioned text that is not really given imperatively anywhere else in the Bible, there are entire denominations that base all of their understandings of the gospel on whether or not you handle snakes. And I'm, I'm not meaning to make fun of them. I'm simply telling you, do you see the danger? Never, ever, ever take any single verse or text or passage and build up a doctrinal system from that. So secondly, the cure for that is to always let the scriptures, all of them together, be the ultimate interpreter of itself. So that if you have trouble with a certain text or a question about a certain text or a problem with a specific passage, you should always go to other places in the Bible to find the ultimate answer and to allow them to be the ultimate authority for the questions that you have. So that our doctrines are built by the, by the completed testimony of God's word, not by any singular part of it. And then thirdly, let us be careful to always look deeply when we study God's Word. 
to take it lightly and to just read it superficially and, and, and to, to spend very little time thinking and digging and mining the word that we've been given is a huge error. And it is an extreme danger. For as we see in these verses, there are questions we cannot answer. There are things we do not know. But one thing that it shows us is that our God is bigger than our comprehension, that he works in ways that we do not understand, that he's given us a word that is right and good and holy and is meant to teach us about the gospel of Christ that gives us that everlasting hope that Peter talked about. And if we are to find it and to know him, we must take his word and we must deeply and carefully study it to deal with the problems. So to the text. Let's look then at verses 9 through 20 together. We will read them, we will study them, and we will praise God for his providence in giving them to us this morning. Before we read them, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, while there are questions about the Bible and the scriptures and even these verses before us this morning that we cannot answer, I pray that you would strengthen our faith. Uh, God, that you would use these verses even now to encourage us for the work that you've called us to, to encourage our faith in the resurrected Jesus and in your power at work in him, that it also is at work in us. Lord, teach us from your word this morning and help us to understand things that we are simply unable to get. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So enough of the history lesson, on to the Bible. Mark chapter 16, verse 9, it says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when she heard that he was alive and had seen and had been seen by her, when when they heard that he was alive and seen by her, they would not believe it. Now after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe him. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So this text, I mean, what are we to do with this beyond the difficulties of whether or not it was originally a part of the text? It is here before us this morning, and I think there are some important things that we can glean from it. If we simply take the story for what it is and take them at their face value as they're given, there is, the, there is one striking reality present in these verses that I think has everything to do with what it's trying to teach us. And it teaches us a great deal. And it is simply this. Do not miss it. Number one. The disciples were struggling to believe. That may not seem like a profound reality to you, but the disciples were struggling with their faith. They were struggling to believe. These 11 disciples and these women who had followed Christ and other disciples who had 
walked with him and seen the miracles that he did and experienced his grace and his mercy and his love and his person. They had watched him crucified on a cross just as he had prophesied and said, go to the grave and then to hear, to begin to hear the news of the empty tomb, they do not believe. Multiple accounts. It says he rose there on the first day and he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, one of the women. One of the last to maybe believe in life and one of the first to believe and attend him in death. She went and she told those who had been with him, that is his followers, that is his disciples. And as they mourned and wept, she's telling them, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Not just that they were sort of astonished and amazed, but they rejected the the simple truth that Mary Magdalene came and said, I have seen him with my own eyes. And they would not believe her. So then he appears, not to Mary Magdalene only, but again in another form to two of his followers. As they're walking in the country, they go back and they tell all of the rest, that is, at least the ones to whom they had access. But the ones they told did not believe him either. So the number's growing. Those that are hearing the testimony of the risen Lord Jesus, the empty tomb, the resurrection, victory over death. They tell him and they simply cannot believe. And afterward he appeared to the eleven. I mean, this is striking, is it? So here he is again with his 11 most intimate companions that have seen things that nobody else has seen, that have experienced grace. Remember all of the stories. Experienced the manifestations of God's grace in a way that no other person has ever experienced. They were with Jesus in the garden. They were with Jesus on the boat. They were the ones through whom Jesus ministered to so many miraculously, fed the 5,000. They have seen and experienced so much, and they have listened to Jesus teach a great deal. And here he is with them again. He appears to them personally. This is, this is no longer Mary bringing them a message or two of them relaying the message of what they have seen. They no longer have to take a second-hand account of it. Jesus himself appears to the eleven. Only eleven because Judas, who has betrayed Christ and who has proven himself to be an unbeliever and who has committed suicide, he's gone. He's out of the picture. So the twelve have now been whittled down to eleven. He appears to the eleven, but look at what it says. They were reclining at the table. And they did not believe either. Why? Because he rebukes them. He rebukes them for their unbelief. He rebukes them for their hardness of heart. Because they had not believed all of those that testified to having seen him and that he had indeed risen from the dead. Friends, this is an amazing reality, not only because of their experience with Christ. It's an amazing reality because they were told what was going to happen. On three different occasions, Jesus walking with them said, The Son of Man, I I must go and be delivered up into the hands of sinful men and die even to the point of death, but do not fear, for I will 
be raised from the dead. He prophesies about his death. He tells them what's coming. On the road to Jerusalem, the last time that he did it, if you go back to Mark chapter 10 and verses 32 through 34, what you see is on their way to the city of Jerusalem before before this week of Passover, before the last week of Jesus' life, what does he tell them? He says, we are going up to Jerusalem because I must die. But do not fear, because though I will die at the hands of sinful men, I must die in order to accomplish redemption for you, and I will go into the grave, but I will not remain there. God will raise me from the grave. He, he, he tells them, and, and yet they watch it happen, and they cannot believe. And then they hear the news, and they cannot believe. And then he stands in their midst, and I can only wonder, in their hardness of heart, and their waning and struggling faith, how many of them still did not believe what was before their very own eyes. Friends, I think there's something very practical about this. Let us never, let us never be too proud of the strength of our faith. Guys, if the apostles' faith can struggle, and, and if they can walk with Jesus and be taught by Christ himself from his mouth about the exact things that are going to happen, and then when they happen, struggle to believe and to trust him, friends, you and I can as well. Let us, let us never be too confident in our own faith. Let us take confidence in God who is strong in our weakness. And as we're going to see, who ministers to us in spite of our weakness. But also, let us never, never have the expectation of other Christians for perfect faith. Yeah, how easy it is to look at other people who call themselves Christians, other members in the congregation, other people who are part of God's family that we know that we love, that we've been put in relationship with, who are struggling mightily, whose faith is waning, who maybe have not grown, who are in a valley, a season of immense low, like the disciples were. Friends, what do we do? We sort of stand atop our towers of righteous arrogance, and and we look down our noses at them because, because they just don't get it, and they're just not strong enough, and they just don't believe. Friends, the apostles struggled to believe, and this was not the first time. They had every reason to believe, and, 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 and yet they struggled. So let us, let us be quick to encourage and to be patient with the faith of other Christians. Not to look down on them, but to encourage their faith and, and, and to help them when they struggle and to come alongside them and bear their burdens. So the disciples were struggling to believe, but I think the second thing that we see here is maybe the most important and the most striking. It, it brings great encouragement. Both of, uh, there's going to be two more points after this very briefly for your encouragement, but I think they both flow out of this single reality. Yes, the disciples struggled to believe. Their faith was waning. Maybe it was gone. They, they, they were really struggling, but Christ was not bewildered by their lack of faith. You know what you don't find in this passage? A frantic Jesus running around trying to figure out how he's going to get all of his disciples back. What am I going to do? How am I going to help them to understand? Oh, no, they, I have told them, I have shown them, and now I'm standing before them, and they're struggling to believe me. This is a huge problem. That is not the Jesus that you see in this passage. It is not the Jesus that you see in this passage. He appears to them. He goes after them. 
He's going to give them the faith that they need. He's going to bolster and encourage their belief. He is going to meet them at their place of weakness. Do you not love that as we've seen time and again with his disciples, the message of the gospel and of the Jesus of the gospel is not to go and strengthen your own faith and get it all figured out and get your life back together and then come and see me. No, Jesus comes to us in our mess. Jesus goes afar off, Moses says, to get those who are afar and bring us near. This is the disciples in a far off land, spiritually speaking, whose faith is waning and struggling mightily. And Jesus leaves the grave and postpones his trip to glory so he can go to struggling disciples. Appear to them, speak to them. Rebuke them and teach them. Lead them to himself. Put faith back in their heart. Give them what they need to believe. Friends, that's the testimony of the gospel in all of our hearts, is it not? That God has come for us in Jesus. And that when our faith struggles, he gives us what we need to believe. Friends, this, this is what God has declared would happen from the beginning of the scriptures in the Garden of Eden. As the history of of redemption unfolded, the promise of God was not, I hope to be their God, and I wish they would be my people. But I'm just sort of impotent to make that happen. What I want most is for them to believe in me and to trust in me, but I'm not sure if it's going to happen. No, he declares, for I will be their God and they will be my people. I I will be their shepherd and they will be the sheep of my flock and they will know my voice. I will be their God. I will be with them. They will know me. See, see from the beginning, God knew he was going to have to come to us, whose faith struggled, whose, whose hearts were weak, and whose wills were often failing, and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what he did with these disciples. He he wasn't frantic. He was pursuing them with his plan and his will for their faith and redemption. And friends, it is this reality, it is this reality that gives great testimony to the truth of the resurrection. I mean, God is so gracious and so merciful to come to us even when we struggle to believe, even when we don't have it all figured out, even when our life is in total shambles. He comes to us and he does for us what we cannot do and he brings light to the darkness and faith to the faithless and life to the dead. Isn't that the testimony of the truth of the resurrection? That even for the disciples, those whose faith was weak at the first, ultimately they did believe at the last. It was never in question. Yes, their faith was struggling, but ultimately it was strengthened. It testifies to us that God is not dead, that Christ is not dead, but he is alive, that he has conquered death. He has conquered the powers of darkness that held him there. And he has given life and light. He grants that life and he grants that life to the darkened, unbelieving hearts of sinners. It's, it's because he's alive. It's because he's alive. So Christ is not bewildered by their lack of faith, friends. The disciples are struggling, yes. They're pathetic sinners that seem to be 
that, that seem to just be all over the place and not getting it, but, but Christ comes to them with redemptive, recreative grace. And he grabs them and he brings them back in and he, and he strengthens their heart to believe in him. He doesn't send them out and tell them, guys, I'm so disappointed in you. I cannot believe that you don't believe in me. I've done more than you deserved and ever could have asked. You need to go get it figured out. And if you can find it in your heart to believe in me, I want that to happen. But if you can find that and make that happen, then come back and see me and we'll talk. (laughs) That's not the Jesus of these verses. And friends, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus promises to be their God. And declares that they will be his people, and he makes that happen. Thirdly, what we see then after this, this redemption, this reconciliation, after he goes and gets them, this grace that he showers upon them by pursuing them in spite of the hardness of their heart and their unbelief, he then calls the struggling disciples, and I want you to sort of put yourself in their shoes, it's pretty staggering. He calls the struggling disciples, who are struggling just to believe. They're not even sure that he's alive. They think their master, their king, their, their Lord is dead. The one who they've given up everything to follow. They are struggling, but he comes to them. Not only does he redeem and sort of bring them back near, <laughs> he then calls the struggling disciples to an impossible task. Look at what he says. And he said to them, he commissions them to then take up the torch to to these these bumbling, struggling, hard-hearted, unbelieving disciples. That's unbelievable. If these were my disciples, they would be the last ones that I gave this task to. What does he say? Look at verse 15. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation so that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Friends, notice there that baptism is intimately connected to saving faith, that for those who believe it was an expectation that they would identify with Christ through the waters of baptism, but notice that it is not a saving grace because the condemnation... If if you look at the second half of the verse, those that believe and are baptized will be saved, but who is it that is condemned? Only those who do not believe. Not those who do not believe and have not been baptized. We are condemned because we don't believe in Christ. So that the simple message of the gospel is not to have to do anything to earn it, but for broken, sinful, wretched messes to simply with all of their heart, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that's appearing to them, to trust in him. But notice the importance, and this is not a sermon about baptism, but just to note that there, the importance of baptism. But what does he tell them? He wants these 11 men who are struggling just to believe that he is there, that he is indeed alive, that he is not still dead, and that the powers of wicked men and the powers of darkness grim have not had victory. They're struggling to believe all of those things, and he wants them and and the other followers with them to go into all of the world and to make disciples of every nation and to preach the gospel to every creature. You know what sort of fortitude that would take? You know what sort of expertise that would take? What sort of, I don't know, planning and methodology? You know, what sort of strategy they would have had had to have begun to employ and put together to preach the gospel to every creature? 
holding before them belief in Jesus Christ and salvation, redemption and reconciliation? Why would he do such a thing? Why would he do such a thing? He would call these struggling, you know, boneheaded disciples to this impossible task precisely because they could not accomplish it on their own. Just like they could not believe. So that when they believe and when their hearts are strengthened and when their lives are restored and then when they go into the world, these imperfect, ridiculous guys, these sinners, and they preach the gospel to every creature and then... Then, then the nations come to know Jesus and believe in him by virtue of their message. Jesus gets all the glory. He calls them to the task precisely because they cannot do it and they must be wholly dependent upon him to do so. See, it's just like their faith. If, if they're out there trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get their life together and fix it and then come to Jesus and bring whatever beautiful life they have to offer him, it, it's never going to work until they understand that they're wholly incapable, right? And totally dependent upon the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the risen Lord. It's the same way for their message. It's the same way for their commissioning. It's the same way for their job. They must go into all the world wholly and completely dependent upon Jesus. Friends, he's calling them to go into the world the same way that he's calling them to go into eternity. Go into the world preaching the gospel dependent upon me. And when you pass through the waters of death and step into eternity, do so wholly and completely dependent upon me. For I have died to bear the curse for your sin, and I am now alive by the power of God in Christ as the evidence of what is to come in your life. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture about the power of God on display for these guys. So he calls these struggling disciples to this impossible task, and then fourth, he doesn't just tell them, he assures their hearts that his power will go with them. So this gets to now the peculiar part of the text that so many people struggle with, folks. In light of what I've articulated for you this morning, it is not difficult to understand. Look at verse 17. After he commissions them with this, this unbelievable task, forcing them to acknowledge that they must do so only and wholly, completely dependent upon him, I mean, can you imagine as they're struggling to believe and then he calls them to go and preach the gospel to every creature what their thought process was? What? How are we supposed to do that? I'm not even sure I can believe. You know, you remember the words that we've read already? Help my unbelief from the Father. What does he say in verse 17? And these signs will accompany those of you that believe. These signs will accompany you who believe. In my name you'll cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So the Lord Jesus, then after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God and they went out and they preached everywhere. Look, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by these accompanying signs. Friends, the signs are not for the people who are to be saved by their message. It doesn't even even fit the context. Jesus is encouraging and assuring these 
struggling disciples that if you'll trust me and believe in me and go into the world preaching this message to all of these people, I will go with you and my power will be at work through you so that you don't have to worry about your struggling faith. I am going to assure and and strengthen the message that you preach. What does he say? That their message was confirmed by the signs that he did. And friends, this is the testimony of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, that as these men went into the world and preached the gospel to every creature and to sinners, what happened? Every one of these signs, at least as far as we know that was written, the only one of these that is not fulfilled in the book of Acts, and it may have been, we just aren't given testimony of it in the scriptures, was that they, you know, the drinking of a deadly poison. But every other one of these miraculous signs was done by the apostles in order to prove and to confirm and to strengthen the message that they preached to sinners, which is simply this, believe in Jesus and be saved, believe in Jesus and be changed, believe in Jesus and be reconciled with God. Bring your mess, bring your struggling faith. Come to Jesus and trust in him. Believe in him. He is alive. He has conquered death. He has brought light to the darkness and life over death. That was their message. And these signs accompanied it. He assures them that he will go with them. Friends, this is so encouraging for God's people. It's encouraging for us to know that when we labor with Christ and when we labor for Christ, that we do not labor in vain. For sometimes it may feel as as we take the message of the gospel out into the world and we preach it to all the creatures that we are making very little progress. Friends, there is no, there is no labor for the kingdom of God that is done in vain. For Christ promises to go with us, to work with us, and to confirm our message in the hearts of those who hear it. He will bless any labor that his children perform in his name. It's also encouraging for us to know that Christ is in heaven, isn't it? Look at what we're told there in verse 19. We already read it. After he told them, I will go with you, and I will do these things through you, and I will confirm this message for you. It's not about you and your power and your method. I'm going to do this through you. What does he say? So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was caught up into heaven or taken up into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of God. Friends, isn't isn't it good to know that Jesus, our King, is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God for us, interceding on our behalf all of the time. That our Savior's work, though it is done here, it is not done in heaven. That while we labor for Him and we grow weak and weary, Jesus is neither. And while we sleep to rest, he does not sleep nor slumber. And while we face death all the day, Jesus conquered death and is alive. He is not sleeping. He is not weary. He is not tired and he is not dead. He is alive and at the right hand of God, standing before God's throne, interceding on our behalf that our strength, that our faith would be strengthened and that our message would be confirmed. Friends, That's good news. Because like the apostles, you struggle, and so do I. And our faith, our our faith may wane. But God's promises are sure. Friends, I would just ask you this morning in light of these verses, are you struggling to believe? I I mean, I don't know where all of you are in, in your life. You know, 
some of you I know, I know for sure, I've been with you this week, have, have walked through very difficult and dark valleys in the last week or two. Are you struggling to remember the promises that God has made to you like the disciples were? Are you struggling to trust him? Are you struggling to believe in him? Are you overwhelmed by your your fears and your anxieties like the disciples were? Friends, take comfort from these from this story. Take take comfort from these words. Christ will not leave you. <laughs> he will not forsake you. He will come to you in your weakness. Cry out to him, trust in him. He will bring you who are afar near, and he will give you the faith that you can't muster on your own. Let's pray. Father, um, we confess this morning as your people that we struggle. We are prone to wander and sin. Uh, We struggle to believe and to trust you. And so, Father, help us to take great comfort from the experience of the disciples who, in the face of great difficulty, Lord, of uncertain circumstances, they, they also struggled. But, God, thank you that you went to them when they could not come to you, that you restored them, that you redeemed and recreated them, that you brought those who were afar near that you gave them a faith and then you gave them a message of faith. Lord, Lord, that what we see in this passage is that you are sovereignly at work to do for sinners what we cannot do for ourselves. God, I, I pray very simply for, for every person who's here um, that they would trust in Jesus, that they would understand that it's not about getting it all fixed up and figuring it out and being strong enough, but that it's about your strength and your power (laughs) bringing light to the darkness, making beauty from our mess, or make us wholly and completely dependent upon your power through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.